All right, you notice that Mike Dean, our, our building guy, right? He's the one excited about uh, no plumbing in heaven, right? <laughs> Nothing to do on the building. <clears throat> Actually, Mike does a phenomenal job overseeing this building. Yep. We'd be in much trouble without Mike Dean, so I'm very thankful. But I think, Mike, what's going to happen is you are going to get to heaven... And uh, it's like the parable of the minas, okay, in Luke 19. It says, well done, good and faithful servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. <laughs> There will be a whole lot of buildings for you to take care of. And I actually believe you will have some cities to take care of, and I know you'll do it. You'll probably fall over first, but uh, you, will, you will do it joyfully. Let's look at Acts chapter 1. Starting in verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, and um, we thank you, God, that you are so good to us. We thank you that you pour out your mercy and grace upon us um, daily, really hour by hour, minute by minute. Um, We thank you that you hold the universe together, God. Um, And if it weren't for you, everything would cease to exist um, in the snap of a finger. So thank you that you are powerful Um, that you are not only powerful, but that you are also loving. Thank you that you are just, but also merciful, God. And those who seek you, Lord, with humble hearts, you receive. I do pray for our unsaved neighbors, our unsaved um, friends, our unsaved co-workers, Lord, um, that you would use us to reach them, that you would open up those doors, that you would make us bold, to walk through those doors, to share with our neighbors, to share with our friends, to share with our coworkers, to share with um, our classmates. God, um, give us those opportunities and help us to be faithful, Lord, um, to share the message of hope with them. I pray for our church as a whole, that we would um, be a church characterized by our love for you, by our heart for the gospel, by our desire um, to want to see it, Lord, shared with this nation, um, and with all the nations, God. So I pray that you would continue to work in our midst. I pray, Lord, that um, we wouldn't just be Sunday Christians. We wouldn't just be Christians um, for the 45 minutes when worship is going on and the worship team is leading God. Um, But really, the joy of the Lord would fill us um, 24-7. God, be near us now. Um, we know you are. We acknowledge you are, God. We thank you that you are, and we love you. Amen. All right, we, we've ordered 
um, some more of these Gospel of Johns. And um, I talked with the people um, at the Pocket Testament League if they were going to get any Christmas, or excuse me, Easter covers. And so they um, were trying to figure out actually what they were doing. So we're hoping that they can get some more Easter-ish type covers, and we'll order some of those too. But in the meantime, um, we've ordered a couple hundred Gospel of Johns with various covers on them. They should be here this week. So I encourage you, we'll get those, and we'll get those um, available um, for you guys. I was at uh, the store the other day, and, and when I was checking out, um, I asked my normal question that I ask um, to whoever I hand these out to, and my simple question is just, um, have you ever read the Gospel of John? And so far, of all the people I've asked, um, only three people have said yes. And so this um, lady said no. So I just um, said my few sentences that I normally say, and I'm, you know, I want to give this to you. This is the Gospel of John. And um, she took it, and she looked at me, and she said, I need some more Jesus. So I got to talk with her for um, just a couple minutes, um, probably not even a couple minutes, probably a minute or something, invited her to our church, um, and she was probably college age, so invited her to our college and career group. Um, and what I try to do when um, I'm sharing with people or when I'm handing them a, a gospel track is if they have um, like a name tag on, I try to take note of that, and then when I get home, I jot that down. So then I can pray specifically um, for that person. And so I, I'm um, encouraging you guys to you know, pray for those people that you're handing these out to because um, God will use his word. And who knows where these things end up? Um, we don't know. But, you know, maybe they end up on that person's um, desk at home, you know. And there it is sitting, and their spouse or their kid or their mom or dad comes home and picks that up and looks at it. I mean, you just don't know the effect that one little booklet can have. Um, so pray pray that God has those booklets fall into the right hand. Maybe the, the booklet that you're handing isn't even for that person, if you know what I mean, right? Someone else is supposed to get a hold of that, and, and that person that you're giving it to is going to be the conduit to get it to the person that God wants to have. So I, conti- I encourage you to continue um, to take advantage of that or, or, or however you decide to share the gospel. Listen, um, we have the greatest gift in the world, don't we? I mean, we have the greatest gift in the world. Um, it doesn't do anyone any good if they never hear about it. Okay, We can have the greatest gift in the world, but if people don't know about the greatest gift, it doesn't do them any good. So, listen, we know we have the truth. Like, we know. I mean, I don't know about you, but I think you know. But I know, like, I have the truth. I know I have it. I didn't have it for many, 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 many years. Um, And we know we have the truth. We have it. And it's not just my truth, or it's not just your truth. It is the truth. It is the truth for everybody. And we know we have the greatest gift in the world. We know. We don't think. We don't kind of guess. You know, I mean, sometimes when people ask ask me a question or whatever, my kids come to me and, was Abraham Lincoln, what president was he? And I'm like, well, I think he was the 16th president. You know, I'm like, I'm pretty sure, but not quite sure. Let me get out my phone. No, when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to who Jesus is, when it comes to who God is, we know. We know. If you are a believer, you know. 
And we know that we have the one and only God and Father in the universe. And he is the best. Uh, It does the unbelieving world no good if they don't hear these truths. Doesn't do them any good. Doesn't do them any good if they don't hear the gospel. In this book, um, and we're not going to give them out yet, I appreciate my ushers being ready to go with it, Um, but we are giving, it's a really original, amazing title that this book has that we're going to give each of you a copy. It's called Evangelism. Um, This is the book that we're actually going to go through in our life groups um, for the next probably four or five sessions. It is a short book. It is a readable book, but it is packed with a lot of info. Okay, so in one sense, you could read it easily, um, but don't make the mistake of reading it quickly. Okay, so every family, we have bought every family, whether you're in a life group or not, every family, um, a copy of this. And I just want to read a section actually from the preface. It's not even from the guy who, who wrote the book, um, but it, it, it makes a point well. So here's the preface. Not long thereafter, I had the privilege of being overseas in the location where Mac, who's the author of the book, leads a ministry to college students and serves as one of the elders of a church. I was preaching at the church one morning, and after I finished, Mac started introducing me to all sorts of people. Here's the general gist of how those conversations went, though I've changed the names. Hi, my name is Abdul, one man said to me. I grew up as a Muslim, but a couple of years ago, God graciously saved me from my sins and myself through Christ. That's wonderful, I responded. How did you hear the gospel? Through my friendship with Mac, Abdul said. He asked me one day if I wanted to read through the gospel of Mark with him. I told him I was willing. And within a few months, the Holy Spirit had opened my heart to believe. Then I turned to another man who introduced himself. Hey, I'm Rajesh. I was a Hindu all my life until someone invited me to this church. I didn't know anything about Christianity until I got here. But Mac and others started meeting with me and showing me who Christ is and what Christ has done. I was overwhelmed, and after exploring all sorts of questions that I had with Mac, I trusted in Christ for my salvation. Behind Abdul and Rajesh was Matthew. Matthew said to me, I grew up in a nominal Christian, uh, I grew up a nominal Christian devoid of any relationship with Christ. But last year, God opened my eyes to what faith in Christ truly means. I repented of my sins and believed in him. Let me guess, I said, Mac led you to Christ, right? And Matthew said, no, you're right. No, Matthew said, Abdul and Rajesh did. They spent hours with me in scripture, showing me what it means to follow Christ. Then Matthew asked me, can I introduce you to Stephen? He's a friend of mine who is exploring Christianity right now, and he came with me to church, um, to the church this morning. You get how it works, right? So these guys, Mac, who's the author of the book, is an evangelist. Um, Even though he actually says he's not an evangelist, really, um, he's out there sharing. And then the people he's sharing understand that they need to share, too, and that they have a heart for doing it. Um, That kind of captures really what... um, Really, the pastors want our heart to be with this issue of evangelism. So, encourage you. This is your opportunity because we're going to kick this off this week um, for our life groups. And, and so, if you're not in a life group, excellent opportunity to jump into one um, and be a part of this. 
um, I continue to hear really, really good stories um, about our life groups and the work God is doing in them. So we will hand the books out at the end of the service. There is also, um, we're, we're putting together a study guide, and we made sure we had the, we actually have the first chapter done, but we're only going to cover um, the intro and the first part of the first chapter. So make sure you get um, a sheet with the questions on it that go with the book that you can answer during the week. Okay. He mentions it in the book. There's actually an evangelistic program out there um, that really focuses on one-on-one, getting people to sit down with you um, and to study and read through the Gospel of Mark. I actually don't know the name of it, though I have it, I could find it. Um, Which, as I've thought about it, um, is really kind of this, a similar concept to what we're hoping to accomplish when we um, hand out the Gospel of John's. Because what are we hoping to do when we hand those out? We're really hoping that the Word of God speaks for itself. And it does. So, same concept with doing a Bible study. Hey, do you want to read through the Gospel of Mark with me um, and see what it has to say? Letting the Word of God speak for itself. I, I was sharing with a, a lady the other day, and she said to me, um, I can honestly say I've never read the Bible. I'm like, would you really lie about that? <laughs> I can honestly say. Um, listen, the Bible is a book that many people criticize, but few actually have ever taken the time to read. And that's one of the goals with that particular evangelistic approach, and even with our approach, is really having people actually read the word, and let God do his work through it. Um, if you're back in Acts, I want you to notice something. In verse 6, talking about the apostles, when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And notice Jesus' reply, um, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. And then verse 8, but, okay, so... You guys are kind of focused where I really don't want you focused right now. You're concerned about the restoration, but here's the thing, guys. You're going to receive power, and when you receive that power from the Holy Spirit, you're going to be my witnesses. Okay? You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So their focus was different at that point than Jesus' focus. That wasn't the mission. So we need to make sure that, listen to me, we need to make sure that we focus where God wants us to focus. Okay? It's not about what we want. It's not about our desires. We focus on what God wants us to focus on. We focus on his mission and not our own mission. What is the mission? The people. The people. Rescuing them from their sins and an eternity in hell. Let me tell you a story. Um, Marco Polo, you've probably heard of him. He was 17 years old when he left Venice for China, 1271, with his dad, Niccolo, and his uncle, Matteo. They traveled 5,600 miles to go meet who? Kublai Khan. He was the grandson of the great Genghis Khan. He was the emperor of China, Korea, North India, Persia, Russia, and Hungary. 
And after meeting with him for some time, Kublai Khan had a request of the polos. And the request was this, bring back 100 teachers that can instruct us in Christianity. Bring back 100 teachers that can instruct us. Only two, when, when the polos came back, only two were willing to go. And they turned back and never made it. So none. The request was made. Two initially heeded the call. None really went. What would those countries look like today if the original hundred theologians requested would have gone? Now, I'm sure all the reasons for all those teachers not going were really great reasons and probably made sense and were very justified. But at what cost? At what cost? There is usually a cost to going. I'd say always a cost to going. Uh, But there's always a cost to staying. And the cost to stay is greater than the cost to go. So there was an unwillingness to take forth the gospel. God had opened a huge door, and man slammed it shut. But one man grew up hearing and reading about Marco Polo's adventures. He had a personal copy of his journal and wrote notes in Marco Polo's journal. And he decided that those people, hundreds of years later, still needed to be reached with the gospel. His name? Christopher Columbus. And if you read the journals of Christopher Columbus, you will see by his own hand where his heart was at. And he wrote to the king and queen of Spain in 1492 and said, Concerning the lands of India and a prince called Grand Khan, how many times he sent to Rome to seek doctors, teachers, and our holy faith to instruct him, and that never had the Holy Father provided them. And thus so many people were lost through lapsing into idolatries. And he goes on later, And your highnesses, as Catholic Christians and princes devoted to the holy Christian faith and the propagators thereof, keep in mind the Reformation hadn't happened yet, and enemies of the sect of Mohammed, and of all idolatries and heresies, resolved to send me, Christopher Columbus, to the said regions of India, to see the said princes and peoples and lands and the dispositions of them all, and the manner in which may be undertaken their conversion to our holy faith. And he goes on, And I ordained that I should not go by land, the usual way to the Orient, but by the route of the Occident, by which no one to this day knows for sure that anyone has gone. So the absence of men in the first situation made a huge difference. But the presence of one man in the second situation made a huge difference. And we need more Columbuses, people focused on the spread of the gospel and that are willing to lay it all on the line to get it out. Um, If we're going to be followers of Christ, it means for us getting the gospel out, really here in our own country um, and out in the nations. We, we have to partake in the work. 
even the tough work. And we have to get the gospel to those who are perishing. Do you know what we're going to find? People ready to receive the word and get saved. But some of us don't believe that. And that's not God's fault. That's a lack of faith on our part. It's a lack of faith. And this summer, look, we're going to be taking a Belize trip. We're going to be going down to Belize. You know what we're going to be doing? The key thing is we're going to be spreading the gospel. We're going to be spreading the gospel to those people. And I think sometimes here's what happens. We say to ourselves, they've already heard it. They've already heard it. I mean, how many years have we been going to Belize? They've already heard it. Well, if we said that, then we'd need to stop a lot of our missions today. Uh, But the word doesn't say stop once they've heard it once. It says go and preach. He never says to stop. In fact, Jesus actually says, "You, you won't get done by the time I come back. That's how much work there is to do. And listen, I'm so glad that someone didn't say that about me. He's already heard it. I'm glad my mom didn't say that. I'm glad my uncle didn't say that. I'm glad my Awana teachers didn't say that. I'm glad that a young man down at Mizzou, Lauren Maloney, who shared with over 100 people with no visible fruit, kept sharing. Because that was the 101st. I'm so glad that he kept doing that. I'm so glad he didn't say, he's probably already heard it. Thank you, brother. There will always be people to go to. There will always be people to go to. That's why we have the Great Commission. Our work will not end. It means there's no such thing as retirement for the believer. There really isn't. If Jesus says you're not going to get done with the work I have for you before I come back, then that means we're going to be working until he comes back, which means some of us will work until we go to be with the Lord. Now, you might retire from your 9-to-5 job, but the Lord will always have a task for you to do. You will always have a mission, and it's not going to be sipping margaritas on some beach the rest of your life. Okay? The, the kind of the world's view of retirement, in, in my opinion, is, is completely unbiblical. If you get to the point where, where you can retire from your job and you can be self-sustaining, then, then really the opportunities for you, the, the door is wide open for what you can do for the Lord. Because you're not restricted to a job where you have to make money. So we have 20 spots we need to fill for this summer in Belize. And we have done everything possible to make this the most affordable trip. And listen, the, the hindrances of 100 years ago, um, or even 50 years ago, for missions, um, they don't plague us. 100 years ago, if someone was going to be a missionary, um, they got on a ship, said goodbye, and probably never saw their family again. There might be some limited correspondence. Today, we can hop on a, on a plane and be down there within uh, less than half a day. And if we had to, we could turn around and come back that same day. 
Boom, just like that. So we have more ways to get the gospel out, more ways to be effective at it, and more ways to do the follow-up that's required than any other point in history. We have no excuses for not doing it. So I'd encourage you this summer to be a part of that trip. If you can't be a part of it, help someone else get there. When Isaiah, in Isaiah 6, which is kind of known as the calling of Isaiah, um, it, it's interesting. Well, let's just turn there. I really wasn't planning on it, but let's just look at it for at least a second. Because I just want you to see this for yourself in writing, Isaiah 6. If you've never read it before, you, need, you do need to read Isaiah 6. Read it in your quiet time today. Um, I'm just going to pick it up in verse 8 because of time. Um, it says, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I, meaning Isaiah, said, Here I am, send me. And then look at this, in verse 9 it says, And uh, he, meaning the Lord, and he said, Go and say to this people, all right? And then he's, he, he tells them what to say. Listen, um, there has to be a willingness to obey on the part of the believer. There has to be a willingness to obey on the part of the believer. Isaiah um, signs up to go. He doesn't even know where he's going. He doesn't even know what the message is yet. Right? He says, I'll go. And then God says, here's what I want you to say. I mean, you want to talk about a heart for the Lord, someone who is willing to just, I'll do whatever you want, Lord. That's really what Isaiah was willing to do. Because he didn't even know what the message was yet. I'll do whatever you want me to do, Lord. And then he says, hey, go deliver this horrible, dreadful message to these people. Oh, thanks. <clears throat> but he was willing, and he went, and he was faithful. And person after person in the Bible is, is, is um, you see, willing to go and bring God's message. Jeremiah. All right? He's known as the weeping prophet. Why? Because, I mean, he's um, telling of the destruction of his very country that he knows is for sure going to happen. And God is telling him these people aren't going to repent. You talk about what could be considered a very, what would, would seem like a very hopeless ministry. Hey, you're going to give these people the message and they're not going to turn. You talk about no fruit. But he was faithful. That's what God asked him to do. He was faithful to the task. Person after person, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Peter, Paul, Philip. Look, God looks for an individual that is willing to go and then actually goes. That listens to him and obeys. And God wants a willingness on our part to do whatever he might call us to do. Many people have missed out on seeing God's work because they were not willing to do what he asked them to do. They did not have that willingness. And I think sometimes there's a danger in Christian circles, I'm guilty of it myself, is, is we judge our Christian condition, we judge our kind of our current spiritual condition based on um, sins of commission. Okay, Com- sins of commission are sins that we commit, sins that we commit. Okay? So we think, oh, I'm not doing this, and 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 I'm really not doing this. I must be really good. Um, but we leave out the sins of omission, sins that we omit, sins that we 
um, things we should be doing, but we omit them. We don't do them, like love your neighbor as yourself. Like go to the nations. We usually don't judge ourselves on those, on those positive commands. We usually judge ourselves on the negative commands. It's really backwards if you think about it because the two greatest commands are actually positive commands. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself. Okay? And, and that's something um, that we fail at miserably. We do, if we're honest with ourselves. Um, sometimes our, our, ha- our best efforts look pretty pathetic. But somehow God takes that and he uses it. And he blesses it. Okay? He sees our hearts. He sees our willingness to be obedient. So God uses us, the ordinary, to do the extraordinary. He uses the normal to do the unusual, the mundane to do the miraculous. And listen, the only way you disqualify yourself is when you start to think you're more than qualified. That's how you disqualify yourself. Okay? Because in one sense, many of us should think, I'm not qualified, I'm not qualified, I'm not qualified. That thought goes through my head a whole lot. I'm not qualified, I'm not qualified, I'm not qualified. There's a sense in which it's true, right? Really not, on our own, in our own merit, in our own standing, on our own. Uh, but there's a sense in which it's, it's completely false. Because... If God calls you, then he has qualified you. He's qualified you to do whatever task he lays before you. Not in your own strength, but in his power. So, um, the only way you disqualify yourself is if you start to think you're more than qualified. If you think, hey man, I'm God's gift to this world. Okay? Why? Because that's pride. So, God's not looking for us to start our own little work that we want to do. He wants us to join him in the work that he's already doing. Um, I shared this sometime back um, at Change the Globe, but I, I wanted to share it again. Uh, you take the country of Iran, for example, and, and it's unfortunate because unless you really keep your, your um, whatever the saying is, your ear to the millstone or something, I don't know. Um, unless you really are listening and reading and trying to figure out what God's doing in this world, you ain't going to get it on Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, or anywhere else you go. So um, if you just go there, you'll end up pretty depressed and hopeless. Um, But there are magazines, there are websites, there are places where you can get um, legitimate info on what God is doing uh, throughout the nations. And um, in Iran, more Iranians have become Christians in the last 20 years than in the previous 1,300 years since Islam came to Iran. More in the last 20 than the previous 1,300. In 1979, this is a fact, 1979, there were an estimated 500 Christians. That's five, zero, zero. Christians from a Muslim background in Iran. Today, there are hundreds of thousands. Some say more than a million. Conservative numbers, hundreds of thousands. Um, Whatever the exact number, many Iranians are turning to Jesus as Lord and Savior. In fact, last year, the mission research organization Operation World 
named Iran as having the fastest growing evangelical church in the world. You want to know what they named as the second fastest growing church? Afghanistan. Afghanistan. Why? Because the Iranians are reaching the Afghans. Okay? Their language is, is similar enough, too. It's neat how God works stuff like that out, right? And there is an article, I, I will just read bits of it, but the title of the article is Five Ways Persecution in um, Iran Has Backfired. It's written by someone who's um, on the ground there doing ministry. I think I shared this first one, um, but I'm going to share it again. Um, banning the Bible has backfired. In addition to banning the printing of the Bible in Persian, um, closing down the Bible Society and burning Bibles, Iranian government officials have warned citizens against reading the Bible. Um, apparently, this warning has caused many Iranians, already disillusioned with their government, to become all the more eager to obtain a copy of the Bible. Right? Many have put their faith in Christ after finding and reading one. A few years ago, a government official waved one of the New Testaments printed by our ministry on national television and warned the population to avoid it. Don't read this book! Demand for the book soared as a result. Two, closing church buildings has backfired. The Iranian government's closure of churches over the past few years has forced Christians of Muslim background to meet in underground house churches. These usually grow and multiply as friends, family, and neighbors give their lives to Christ. Though government security agents work hard to crack down on these outlawed house churches, there are so many, and new ones are formed so regularly that it's impossible to find them all. Three, censoring television and blocking websites has backfired. Christian websites are routinely blocked and TV channels scrambled in Iran. This censorship makes more people curious about what the government doesn't want them to know. Despite these censorship measures, blocked websites can still be accessed through VPNs and scrambled programs through satellite television. This gentleman writing it says, I know of at least 30 new house churches planted as a result of satellite television and follow-up ministry last year alone. Four, killing leaders has backfired. Eight pastors have been martyred in Iran since 1980 because of their ministries. Their deep affection for Christ and their willingness to suffer for him has made these leaders compelling examples for the rest of the church to follow. Their martyrdom counts are well known among Iranian Christians, many of whom desire to imitate their leader's deep love and courage for Christ. Because of their leader's example, many Iranian believers are increasingly willing to take risks in order to share the gospel. Isn't that what happened with Paul in Philippians, right? I'm in prison, and guess what? It's encouraged all the brothers and sisters to be that much more bold. Five, imprisoning Christians has backfired. Persecution is intended to instill fear and paralyze the church. Instead, seeing Christians willing to suffer often draws unbelievers closer to Christ. They ask, who is this Jesus that people are so willing to suffer for. One recently baptized man began his journey to Christ when he heard on the news that Iranian Christians had been arrested for their faith. Their willingness to go to prison for their beliefs made him curious 
And so he Googled Christianity. The Lord used that internet search to eventually lead him to surrender his life to King Jesus. And then it says, almost as a, as a, as a footnote, a few years ago, an, inter- an interrogator admitted to an imprisoned pastor, we know we cannot stop the church. We can only try to slow it down. Which is, of course, what Jesus promised to us, right? The gates of hell would not prevail. So God is working. And we can sit on the sidelines or we can be a part of the effort. We can share or we can be silent. We can be gospel-oriented or we can just be selfish in our living. And the call for us is to get the word out here in the U.S. and throughout the world. And and look, friends, look, we need missionaries. We need short-term missionaries. We need mid-term missionaries. We need long-term missionaries. Um, And we need people to support them financially to go. There's only, when you look really through your New Testament, there's really only two types of believers when it comes to missions. The ones who are sent and the senders. The ones that know they're supposed to go and the ones who know they're supposed to help them get there. Okay? Read through Philippians to understand that book fully. You have to understand why Paul is even writing the letter. We're studying through it in our college and career group. Okay? And part of it is he's thanking them for the gift. What, what is the gift? It's actually a financial gift that he is thanking them for, for him being in prison, for supporting him while he's there, and the work that he is doing in missions. The Philippian church as a whole, they supported him. Other churches, too, you read about in Acts. Thessalonians, he mentions them. They were the most eager to do what? Participate in giving. They were the senders. He was the sent. William Carey, maybe you've never heard of him. He's kind of known as the father of modern-day missions. Um, He lived in the... um, Late 18th, early 19th century, he was a British missionary, a minister, and a Bible translator. He ended up, <clears throat> excuse me, he ended up translating the Bible into six different languages, um, four of which I, I have never even, three of which I've never even heard of. He, he opened the first, in India, he opened the first degree-granting college ever. He has what he calls his 11 commandments of missions. And I wanted to read them to you. One, set an infinite value on immortal souls. I mean, if you see them as infinite value, then there's a pretty good reason to go, right? Two, gain all the information you can about the snares and delusions in which these heathens are held. What's he saying? Know the culture where you're going. Get to know it. What is holding them back? What are their idols? Three, abstain from all English manners which might increase prejudice against the gospel. Okay? If, you go to, if you go to Belize with us, there's certain things that um, we might be able to do here that we can't do there. And there's certain things that um, we might not do here that we do do there. 
out of respect for the culture. Um, Amy Carmichael, who you've probably heard of, her organization, to respect the Indian culture where she was ministering, they wore um, Indian, um, the dress of, of the Indians, and gave the rescued children Indian names. And she herself dressed in Indian clothes and would even dye her um, skin with coffee so that a white person wouldn't like freak the people out, essentially. And she would travel long distances um, on these hot, dusty roads just to save one child from suffering. Four, watch for all opportunities for doing good, even when you are tired and hot. And anyone who's been on a mission trip relates well to this one. Okay? Because there's a lot of tired and there's a lot of hot. And if you check out when you're tired or hot and you go with us, you ain't going to be doing much ministry. <laughs> because you will be tired and you will hot. It's a lot of work. Five, make Christ crucified the great subject of your preaching. Amen? Six, earn the people's confidence by your friendship. It's very important. Seven, build up the souls that are gathered. Right? Don't just save them. Train them. Disciple them. Eight, uh, this, is, this, was, this, this was missing for many, many years in missions, and it's probably made a comeback, I'd say, at least in the last 30 to 50 years, but was missing for a while. Turn the work over to the native brethren as soon as possible. It's very important. Very important. Nine, work with all your might to translate the Bible into their languages. Build schools to this end. Ten, stay alert in prayer, wrestling with God until he famished these idols and caused the heathen to experience the blessedness that is in Christ. And eleven, Give yourself totally to this glorious cause. Surrender. Notice surrender, not sacrifice. Surrender your time, gifts, strength, families, the very clothes you wear. That's from the father of modern day missions. So what is my point in all of this? Go. Go. Just right outside those doors. We could run into an unbeliever within a minute. They are right out there. Probably some in here too. I'm praying for you. Um, Let's get busy with the work God wants us to do. And let's get our focus where his focus is. Not on our own little pet projects, but where he wants it. And he wants the focus on getting the gospel out on fully fulfilling the Great Commission. Go make disciples. Um, We need people to go. We need people to give. We need everyone to pray for those going. There's two categories of Christians for missions. There's only one category of Christian for evangelism. That's all of us sharing. Okay? Okay. It's not just my job. It's not just Pastor Vaughn's job. It's not just the staff's job. It's not just the person with the gift of evangelism's job. You don't see that distinction. 
It is every single one of us. We're all called to do it. Some of us can do it with relative ease. Some of us, um, it's pulling teeth. Okay? Some of us are more comfortable with it. Some of us are not comfortable at all. Then that should stretch you and have you trust that much more in your relationship with the Lord. Okay? It should cause you to lean that much more on him. Um, <clears throat> when my kids, you know, they got a basketball game coming up and they're nervous, you know, I try to tell them, hey, this is an opportunity for you to learn to trust in the Lord for him to help you through that. They got some presentation or some um, little speech they have to give at school and they don't want to do it, they don't like it, they're nervous about it. Again, this is an opportunity for you to trust the Lord and let him help you work through this and know that he will help you through that. But it's the same concept for us in our spiritual walk, right? And I'm trying to teach them, really, in everything, trust the Lord. But it's, just, it's true for us as adults. Um, out there in the world, with your jobs and different things you have to do, but even something as simple as sharing the gospel. We have to trust him. And it, stretch, it stretches me, okay? Um, it, it, I don't think I've got the gift at all. I wish I had it. I wish it was easy for me to talk to people. Um, but that's no excuse for me not to do it. It just isn't. Um, it doesn't matter if I'm comfortable or not. There's things I do as a father um, that I'm not comfortable, that I don't like doing necessarily, that I don't, I'm not all thrilled about. There's things that, that I might do as a husband in the same way. Um, I do them because, ultimately because I love the Lord, but because I love my kids, because I love my wife. Okay? It's the same with the gospel. If we love the Lord, we will do as he commands. Okay? Our love for him should drive us. Okay? I think 2 Corinthians talks about the love of Christ compels us. The love of Christ compels us. Um, and it should, and it will. So I encourage you, for us all, to be busy about the Father's work. Let's pray. Lord, none of us, not a single one of us, deserve to be your children. We don't deserve it. We did nothing to earn it. You were gracious and loving. And you reached out and grabbed us from the muck and mire of this world, from the muck and mire that we chose to get ourselves into. But we did not deserve it. And forgive us, Lord, for taking it for granted. Forgive us for being prideful about being chosen by you, Lord, about choosing you. Forgive us for thinking we are intellectually better morally better, spiritually better, God, that attitude is not from you. Forgive us, Lord. You say that you give grace to the humble. And so I ask that you would humble us. That you would keep us humble. That you would remind us, Lord, of where we were and where now we are. And remind us, Lord, 
of what we were without you, um, because it wasn't a pretty picture, regardless of how we came to know you. We thank you, Lord, that you sent your Son, that it is through his death and resurrection that we can be forgiven of our sins, that that gift is offered to all, that your word says you do not want any to perish. Not one. So, Lord, use us to save those that might perish apart from you, God. Use us, God, in this nation, in this state, in O'Fallon, in St. Louis, in St. Peter's, in Lake St. Louis, in St. Charles, Lord, wherever we might live. Use us to save those who are perishing. Make us bold, God, to open our mouth, to ask, just ask an innocent question, Lord, to open a door. Let us love you more than the world. Let us love our neighbor as ourself. Give us a heart for this, Lord. It is your heart. And and if we truly want your heart, then we need your heart on this. So give us your heart on this, God. Let us um, take these books that each family is about to get um, and uh, let them read it. Let it do its work. Um, Thank you for the author, for him writing it. I pray there will be good discussion in our life groups this Friday that you would use this book um, to give us a deeper heart for the loss. Lord, you are so good. You are so good. Um, 30, 45 minutes of worship is, is not near enough. It's only a drop of water in the ocean of worship that you truly deserve. Um, and Lord, we look forward to seeing you one day face to face. We say, as Paul says now, that we, we see dimly, but we do see. So with the knowledge and the light you've given us, Lord, let us act accordingly. And let us walk in your ways. We love you. Amen. Make sure you grab a book, uh, each family, and, uh, and a set of questions from uh, one of the ushers.